0: Okay. It's a pleasure to uh, introduce um, our Lewis Clark uh, Reduxim, um lecturer for this evening. And for tomorrow, um, it's Professor um, Charles Falco, of, uh, professor of optical science at University of Arizona. Uh, he holds the uh, chair in condensed matter physics at Arizona, has published um, about 250 or so papers in condensed matter physics and given hundreds of talks in many countries in condensed matter physics where he's an expert on multilayers, magnetism, spintronics, and optics. Um, uh, he's won numerous awards, the Alexander von hobolt Foundation Senior Distinguished U.S. Scientist Award. Um, but he's not gonna talk about any of that tonight. Um, in Actually, Charlie's an old friend. In 1979, we were on sabbatical together in Paris, and um, Charlie dragged his wife and my wife and me uh, to museums all over Paris looking for the world's oldest motorcycle. Um, he didn't find it. He claimed it was in the uh, Musée des Arts et Métiers, but it wasn't, as I recall. Um, later on, however, being an expert, having the most extensive collection of motorcycle books, I think, in the English language. Um, He was called upon by um, the Guggenheim Museum in New York when they wanted to put on an exhibit, The Art of the Motorcycle, uh, to be co-curator. And as part of that, which happened in 1998, um, he actually, I think, went back to Paris and found the oldest motorcycle. Um, The exhibit that he put on in the Guggenheim in New York and later in Bilbao and now in Las Vegas, has been the most attended exhibit that the museums have ever had. And he's not going to talk about that tonight either, he's going to talk about that tomorrow night. However, his connection with the Guggenheim uh, led the people at the Guggenheim to get him in touch with David Hockney, um, who's a very noted art, artist that many of you know. Um, who uh, had an idea that uh, Renaissance painters got some of their realism by using optical instruments. And um, Charlie got in collaboration with uh, Hockney, and the result of that collaboration was a book which Hockney wrote and Charlie collaborated on and probably will mention this evening. Um, and the, uh, this talk this evening will be on... Through a looking glass, the art and science of Renaissance painting. And tomorrow night, he will tell us about his work, which resulted in the Guggenheim exhibit and this book, which is on uh, the art of the motorcycle. Troy?
1: Well, we'll see if I've been trained properly to push a button. It looks like, so far, so good. Thank you all for coming tonight. It's going really well. Um, as Paul said, my field of research is physics, condensed matter physics, and it has nothing to do with actually what's gotten me uh, lots of notice in the last couple of years. It, it's, if nothing else, a prime example of how you cannot plan a career, that I never could have planned this sort of thing. That What I'm going to talk about tonight, I rightfully list David Hockney as co-author of this. He and I have been involved in a very intensive collaboration, as I will show you, probably the most intensive collaboration of my scientific career. Some acknowledgments. I'll just give a couple now, and I'll tell you others as we go through there. David Graves and Richard Smith are uh, David's assistants in London and in Los Angeles. Jose Sassian is a colleague of mine at the University of Arizona. He's an optical engineer, designs optical elements and the like. He ran a calculation for me that probably saved me two weeks of trying to figure out how to run a program. And he did it in about 15 minutes and I'll use the result for it. So his, it turns out his mother is an artist and so he's been following this. He's been very interested in it. And I'll tell you about the others as we get to them. If you went to the faculty club at Princeton which everyone I've had dinner with and everyone has talked to today has told me is the best university in the country. So, therefore, it has the best professors in the country. And if you went to the faculty club, gathered together um, at lunchtime uh, scholars from all different disciplines, and you asked them these three questions, not as a quiz, but just to say, do you agree with this? Do you agree that optical instruments first appeared late in the Renaissance, around 1600? with the invention of the telescope by Galileo. Well, sure, we all agree with this. Some people may say, yes, but we really think Janssen invented the compound microscope a couple of years earlier, but basically 1600 is when this happened. Mirrors obviously only reflect images. If you wanted to focus an image onto film or a canvas, requires a lens. Hard to disagree with that. And Renaissance masters like Van Eyck or Bellini were geniuses who produced their results by extraordinary dexterity alone. We all agree with that. If what I'm going to tell you tonight is true, every one of these statements, which are quite fundamental uh, precepts of our knowledge, are wrong. So you should pay attention because it has serious implications if it's true. And, you know, who knows? Maybe it's wrong. You'll have to judge that. This is my generic outline where there's just no time to go through all of this. I actually have over 500 images that are directly relevant to this on my computer. I will stay and answer questions as long as anyone wants at the end. But we're going to have to pick and choose tonight of what to cover. And every talk I give on this, I always give a different talk. So sometimes I'll surprise myself with what slide I've picked. And when I talk a little bit tonight about optics, I read the background to the Venexum lecture series, and it said it's supposed to tie together... Uh, arts and science and popular society and the like. So I'm going to give you more science than I normally do, um, which isn't a lot, but it's going to be more than normal. So we're going to talk a little bit about the quantitative um, image analysis that we can do with lenses and we'll go through a little bit of this and a slight bit of historical context of what was going on in the world at the time. And then I've categorized the optical evidence that we could hope to find within paintings in 12 different categories. And tonight, I think we'll talk about five or six of them at the most. Examples that I claim show, without any doubt, that lenses were used by artists as early as 1430. Perhaps even earlier, but that's as early as we found so far. And then some general observations. So an overall introduction. First, since I give this to wide uh, varieties of audiences, have to set the, um, the stage for what goes on. David Hockney, who I've been working on this uh, with, two respected dictionaries of art and artists. One calls him, the relevant part of this, the most critically acclaimed British artist of his generation. The Yale Dictionary says that he may well be the greatest of modern portraitists. It was David's eye as an artist, a practicing artist, that led to him looking for or noticing anomalies in paintings that um, you could say in an arrogant way, He may have looked at this and said, I could not do this, therefore no one else could, or I don't understand how anyone else could. Or another way is, he knows the level of his skills. He saw things that just didn't seem right to him as an artist, didn't seem plausible that an artist unaided by optics could have done, and it led him to pursue things in greater detail. Well, two years ago, an article appeared in the New Yorker written by Lawrence Weschler, and as Paul said, I had this involvement with the Guggenheim. My uh, friend, uh, co-curator at the Guggenheim, Alton Guilfoyle, got the New Yorker, read this article about how Hockney had seemed to think artists were using lenses, knows of my interest in art, knows of my interest in optics, called me and said, Falco, I don't care what you're doing, drop it, go by the New Yorker, read this, and call me back. It turns out it takes a couple extra days for the New Yorker to get to Tucson. But after the two-day delay, I did, and the connection was made, and it turned out I was going to be in Los Angeles a few weeks later for a physics meeting, and arrangements were made. I was given uh, David's cell phone number that if my meeting ended early, I was going to book the last flight out of Los Angeles back to Tucson, and I would go by a studio and see what it was up to. My, me, my meeting did end early. I went there. And as a result, I started, as I said, the most intense collaboration of my scientific career. After the first six months alone, we'd exchanged a full ream of faxes, 500 pages of faxes. this It was a very exciting time. It still is. So we were finding things and discovering things that we claim, well, you'll see tonight, no one had realized or noticed before. And I'll show you some of this as we go through this tonight. And as a result, there has been lots of discussion um, in the popular press, a lot of it that's wrong. Turns out, um, there some things I shouldn't say. if It's being broadcast on the web, apparently. So we don't want to say bad things about disciplines. Turns out uh, many of the things that were written are incorrect due to a misunderstanding of the level of science that's involved to understand the scientific evidence. So you people are going to leave there tonight understanding the scientific evidence. Now, room's dark, we've all had dinner. Some of us, not me, had wine. Um, so we're sleepy. At this point in a talk, I know you're thinking, he's gonna talk some science. What do I have to pay attention to? You know, what do I have to, to know or not know? You have to know everything I'm going to tell you. I promise you I'm going to tell you what you need to know to understand the evidence, and I won't tell you anything you don't need to know. There'll be no gratuitous use of uh, physics that you'll go away with. So you have to pay attention to everything I say. The first thing is that if you go out to the middle of uh, Kansas and you stand in the middle of some railroad tracks and you take a photograph with a lens, of course, you'll notice something that all the train tracks appear to come to a particular point, a vanishing point. That's a characteristic feature of Lens, of giving you a single point perspective this way. Discovered, The CIA even uses this kind of analysis to discover that this building was pasted in. You draw the vanishing point, it comes to a different place than the purple vanishing points. So therefore, the CIA knows that is not a real building that was pasted in. It is important to you if you're going to target cruise missiles at a city or something. You want to know what's real, what's not real. The idea here is that with absolute 100% certainty, we know that building doesn't exist simply from this vanishing point analysis. So we're going to use vanishing points to understand some of the work we're going to analyze tonight. That's one thing. Another thing is that um, in some cases, but not all, photographs, and this was taken with a photographic camera, photographs contain quantitative information that can be extracted from them about the lens that was used. That if we didn't know how tall David Hockney was, he could just look up at an almanac and make an estimate. The almanac tells you that the average height of an adult male is... meters. So we'll use that. Well, of course, everyone knows the length of a console of a molecular beam epitaxy machine is two meters, so we don't have to look that up. This is enough information with this high school trigonometry equation to calculate that the angular view across the scene is 64 degrees. If you look up, that corresponds to the use of a 22 millimeter focal length lens in this particular camera. In fact, my technician took the photograph with the 24 millimeter lens. So within the uncertainties of this estimate, we've extracted with great accuracy one property of the lens that was used, the focal length. It, um, many photographs don't contain enough information. The, uh, there could be some general scene of mountains off in the distance. You don't know how tall the mountains are. You don't know how far in the distance they are. You can't calculate from that. If you knew the height of the mountains, you might be able to. So we could hope to get lucky and discover in a painting, to the extent it's used as a photograph, that it was created like a photograph, some properties of the lens, some characteristic features that tell us the property of the lens. Another thing you need to know is, lenses intrinsically have what are called a depth of field. For a given lens, if you make the lens diameter smaller by pasting a bagel over the front of the lens, more of the scene will be in focus. A bigger number here corresponds to a smaller diameter lens. More of the scene is in focus. This gives us quantitative information. If, again, if we had certain information in a painting, here one inch of this painting is in focus, the depth is one inch, here, oh, it's more like four or five inches, that we could calculate the um, this what's called the F number. It's a normalized lens diameter. The F number is the focal length, which... The previous slide shows you sometimes we're able to calculate. This tells us the F number. Now we've calculated the lens diameter. Now this is quite remarkable. Just by looking at the image itself, if the image happens to have the information we need in it, we can calculate the size, the focal length of the lens that was used, the weight of the lens that was used. The final thing you need to know is that if we have a lens and we're focused on this object, the image comes into focus some distance behind the lens. It's not some arbitrary distance. It's a distance that's uniquely determined by this equation. One over the focal length is one over the distance to the image plus one over the distance to the subject. That tells you, that alone tells you, is if I change my focus from the front of this object, I move a little bit deeper into the scene. The way you have to move the lens to accomplish that. Counterintuitively, you have to pull the lens further away from the scene to focus on something further this distance, which changes this distance according to this equation. And the magnification is the ratio of those two distances. So the thing you should take away from this are not the two equations, but the fact that if I change the focus to something further into the scene, the magnification will decrease, and it will decrease by an amount we can calculate. None of this is arbitrary. Now, the thing that nobody seems to know, hadn't realized, is going to be illustrated by this little short film clip that's played on the BBC. It hasn't played on the PBS yet. Here, David Hockney is holding a shaving mirror. And the point of showing this clip is Somebody was complaining bitterly at dinner tonight that I wasn't going to do a demonstration with lenses and stuff. Well, instead of hauling that through post 9 security, I used the film clip to substitute. And David is going to use this mirror, the shaving mirror, the kind you can buy at the local drugstore for 2 or $3, to create an image. Concave mirrors have been known since antiquity. They were called horny mirrors. And there's the image focused of the outdoor scene burn the Roman fleet that was trying to sack Siracusa around 0 BC. Well, at the same time you're focusing the sun's rays, you're also forming an image. Now, under normal circumstances, you don't notice the image because the bright glare from the, the bright sunlight that's focused washes out the image. So, it's inconceivable to me that somebody in the right circumstances didn't see an image. And it's obvious to me that Van Eyck saw those images and the difference between them and others over the thousand of years before is they were smart enough to know how to make use of it. Now, the reason why I show this is, first, it's your homework assignment. Some of you are students, used to homework assignments. Go buy a $3 mirror, concave mirror. They come in, typically, or almost always, one side is concave, the other side is flat. You have to use the concave side, the side that magnifies. Hold it that far from the window, a darkened bathroom in the morning works really well and focus your own image. You'll create your own image. The reason for showing this is that I'm not going to go into these details. There is one symmetry property of a mirror over a standard refractive lens that gives us reason to suspect early artists used these concave mirrors. There's lots of circumstantial evidence. And I won't go through all of these. There's a variety of, of Properties of, of lens effects that we've looked for, and I'll show you some of them tonight, that demonstrate that lenses were used early on. But some historical background: Some people would ask me, well, ask or, or accuse is a stronger word; it's more appropriate. Lenses didn't exist back then. Well, in fact, they did, and um, one particular painter, Tommaso de Modena, nicely showed us. One um, cleric wearing reading glasses, which are clearly lenses. Another one holding a magnifying glass. The nice thing about being early on in a field like this is lots of times people from the audience give me new information. One, a retired professor of art history, or sorry, of history, of economic history from Yale came up after one of my lectures and told me and gave me the references to some translations he'd done that showed in 1450, uh, Duke Sforza of Milan ordered, uh, three dozen pairs, 72 individual spectacles from a lens maker in Florence, not Venice, Florence. Venice is thought of as, a, as being the glass, so it's kind of interesting it was, um, Venice, or Florence. And based on the average transit time of correspondence back and forth, said it took one week for those craftsmen in 1450 to fabricate those 72 individual lenses, and the average price per pair of spectacles was half the average salary of a stonemason. So they weren't expensive. If you went to lens crafters today, you'd pay the same price and get them made roughly as quickly as were done in 1450. Well, even more interestingly, I discovered, here's an art historian who noticed there's a concave mirror on the shelf used as a reading mirror you can play with a polished spoon and see you can use this to magnify text. The one mistake he made is that he said that, well, here, he's talking about there's a reading glass and a large and concave mirror on the shelf behind him. Despite their inconvenient habit of reversing the text, he used the lens incorrectly, the person who wrote this. In fact, they don't reverse the text. I mean, if you tilt it slightly differently, they magnify without the reversing the text. So in, 14, in 1350, we have concave mirrors being used for optical tasks, of enlarging um, text. And here's another one, a different version. So every modern optical device we have existed at least in 1352. The the technology existed and people were using them for imaging tasks. Now, whether they use them to create paintings remains for us to show. And clearly artists in the early Renaissance were very interested in these properties of of these um, convex mirrors. You turn a convex mirror around, it's a concave mirror. This convex mirror, the last time you got arrested for shoplifting in the in the uh, convenience mart for shoplifting the cigarettes, it's because the clerk saw you in the back aisle picking up the cigarettes with one of these. It enlarges the view of the world. And artists were very interested in that. And kind of tracing the lineage, and I'll only give you a hint of this, it turns out that in the works of all of these painters, Robert Campan, Jan van Eyck, Rogier van der Weyden, Petrus Christus, and Hans Memling, I can show you each of them used lenses to create at least one feature in one of their paintings. They're all interrelated. Campan and Van Eyck were contemporaries working 15 miles apart, and there are accounts that they, they knew each other and the like, and then everyone else were apprentices to each other and intermixed, and they all were in this very small area of Flanders. Flanders was the the height of the optics industry, let's say, um, at this time. So now, I've claimed these artists were using lenses 200 years earlier than anybody else had, and many, many people who have studied this, have ever said it was possible. How can I make this claim? What proof do we have? And here's um, a popular misconception taken from a very recent article. The paintings themselves cannot prove how they were painted. So the argument is circular. He's claiming that this argument is all circular. This guy is completely wrong. The paintings do contain the information that prove exactly how they were made. You have to understand the science to see this. And if you understand the science, the proof is right there. So I'm going to show you how wrong this person is. And it's a popular misconception. That first visit to David's studio... um, It was a very heady day, very full. I'd done physics all morning. I'm seeing paintings all over the wall of a famous artist. One stuck in my mind, and if you read the correspondence in the back of David's book, you'll find that the evening I returned to Tucson, I was tired, on the plane back, I remembered this painting, and it occurred to me, you know, tell me what that painting is. I don't recognize it. Tell me what it is because... I think there's enough information within that painting for me to calculate the properties of the lens that was used. And I'm going to go through that now. And what I saw was this feature, and I'll show you a blow up in a minute, is out of focus. And then there's a feature over here I'm going to show you. And then one other thing I wanted to draw your attention to, I won't come back to her, is there's this woman in here. This woman is going to be my yardstick. Here's the out-of-focus feature, and there are two vanishing points. Now, that's a characteristic of the use of a lens. It doesn't prove a lens was used, but it's one of many things I'm going to show you. Why two vanishing points? It comes naturally from moving a lens. to give you the two features. Why out-of-focus? You don't see things out-of-focus. The human eye doesn't see things out-of-focus. Either you have bad eyes and everything is out-of-focus all the time, Or if I look at something up close, it's in focus, especially if I'm younger. I look off in the distance, my eye refocuses. My brain causes the muscles in my eye to refocus my eye. And it doesn't tell me it's doing this. And that's in focus. To see two pieces of a scene out of focus is an unnatural thing. We are so used to seeing something like this because we've been raised since birth seeing millions of photographic images. This comes naturally from the use of a lens. But if there were no lenses, how would this have happened? So I told you, the two the woman in the back, I realized I could use her as a yardstick. I measured the distance across the shoulder of my wife and my two daughters, twenty inches. Now three data points. You know, chaikin's up here going, three data points, you need more than three data points. In the land of the data lists, the man with three data points is king. (laughs) This is Someone can come along, the National Bureau of Standards can set up an institute years from now and they can measure many, many shoulders and they'll find instead of being 20 inches, it's 19.937 inches. Change is not one iota of our conclusions. So that gave me a horizontal scale. Luckily for us, Lorenzo Lotto painted this very regular triangular pattern. I can convert the 20 inches. It turns out that, that on the scale print, Coincidentally, that ends up being exactly two centimeters across. I have a horizontal distance. We see this feature going out of focus. It's certainly in focus about five of these repeats. That's one repeat, two repeats. It's in focus at five. It's certainly out of focus at nine. So somewhere in between is the depth of field, if this were a lens. And then I draw your attention over here, six or seven repeat distances. There's another feature I'm going to show you in a second that occurs here. That feature, at that distance in, the vanishing point changes by three degrees. And I I won't show you the calculation tonight. I calculate three degrees within uh, very small uns- experimental uncertainty from the optical properties of the lens that I'm going to show you was used to create this painting. And I'll summarize all of this at the end. Here's another thing. This, This octagonal pattern, I thought... Maybe I could fit something to this octagonal pattern. If it really was an octagonal pattern, if it was a real cloth, I mean, if a lens were used, that tablecloth actually existed at the time, so I should be able to calculate it. So I, I drew one. Here's my octagonal pattern. I mean, there's the scale. It turns out, if you think about this a little bit, which I didn't do the first time, you start to draw this, if you're a little sloppy with how long, where you make this break and a little sloppy here, by the time you come around here, nothing matches up. So you realize you've got to be careful. That's one thing. The other is, you have lots of choices here. There's lots of degrees of freedom. I can make you maintain a nice symmetric octagonal pattern. I can make this line this long, that, which would make that line that long, which would then would automatically stretch this line. So the, there's an infinite number of choices of how to make this octagonal pattern. I drew this one based on what that uh, lotto looked to me. And I'll show you how well my first attempt worked. So first thing is, I just were viewing it, that octagonal pattern from an angle. So this is what it looks like, corrected for the angle. I fit this really well, but here it's completely wrong. I mean, back here, I'm not even close. But up front, given that I could have made this a little bit broader, up to this point or so, not even there, it breaks at that point, I've, I've lost it. But I've told you at this point, Lotto had to refocus. And the other thing, if you were paying attention, which I told you you had to, when you're refocused to something further into the scene, the magnification decreases. This is too big. Maybe it'll decrease by the right amount. Whoa, it did. So now the front is out of doesn't fit, but we've already painted the front. Now I get back here. I get all of this really well, but eh, something back there. I can do it one more time, refocus, and I can get this and actually tilt it slightly. So what I'm telling you is Lotto refocused once, refocused twice, and I put this all together, and it fits. This is the point where I know having done this once, I could redraw an octagonal pattern to make it fit perfectly, but my feeling on this is it'll take me half a day to do this and take the photographs and all and run it through Photoshop, that the people that understand what I've done here believe this already, and the people who don't want to believe it, Aren't going to believe it if it fits perfectly. So I'm not going to bother. Now, another feature. Now, a lot of stuff here. I'll just tell you what we're going to do. He had to refocus. In going from the blue part, when we change to green, we've refocused. Well, here that's like five of these triangles, repeat distance into the frame. Two, three. Over here, it's four, so somewhere between four and five triangles, and we know the spacing between them is refocused. We have our two equations, and I won't go through the calculation. We end up with the fact that this predicts that at the point where he refocused from the blue region to the green region, the magnification decreased by 14%. I had to make one assumption of how far away their lens was originally, and I assumed a meter and a half. Turns out if I change the assumption from a meter, there's no way the the lens could have been closer than a meter. Two meters, it just wouldn't have been further than two meters. This 14% change I've calculated, the range goes from 11% to 19%. So 14 is about in the middle. So I'm calculating from the properties of the lens predicts a 14% change. and If I measure the difference between, and these are the scaled ones I showed you before, I measure 13%. Within our experimental uncertainties, we have perfect agreement. Quantitative agreement. Putting this all together. This particular painting, which we call our Rosetta Stone, has all this evidence kind of in here. Qualitatively, the features that are telling us a lens was used, the octagonal pattern goes out of focus, there are two vanishing points clearly visible. In fact, there are three. The third one, back in here, just, it's harder to see. There's an excellent fit of these perspective corrected octagons to the pattern and there's a change to a second vanishing point in the border at the same depth into the scene where the central feature goes out of focus. That's all qualitative and it's all telling you lens. Then quantitatively, I've calculated the focal length of the lens. I haven't shown you how I did this, but I've got, I can show you if you ask me at the end to be 54 centimeters. And I did that from the magnification of the painting from a completely different independent feature the depth of field, I calculate the lens diameter as being about one inch diameter. From another feature, the change in magnification upon refocusing, I calculate there should be a 14% change in magnification, which is what we find with an experimental uncertainty. And finally, this three-degree change in convergence angle, we calculate to be three degrees from the change in magnification upon refocusing, which is consistent with the same 5'40". There just is overwhelming scientific evidence within this painting that a lens was used in 1523. Now we've pushed back from Galileo in 1600 to 1523. And the more important uh, fact of this is it tells us that the images themselves are the documentation. You don't need to find a manuscript written in Flemish. I, Jan van Eyck, today use my Nikon 24 millimeter lens to, to paint this painting. That would be nice. It's not essential. If you have these kinds of features, if you read the images, they tell you as much as the documentation, if not more. Because documentation, written words, can lie. Jan van Eyck could write, today I created this wonderful work and I didn't use a lens. Well, maybe he's just trying to fool us. One of my favorites um, is an hour away from here. It's in the cloisters at the Metropolitan. You can see what I'm going to show you next. You can go up there and look at it with your own eyes and you'll be amongst the first people in the world that notices this feature. And there's this triptych by Robert Campan. And I'm going to show you the rightmost panel. I'll just show it first. So here's Joseph in the carpentry shop. Notice that Joseph's blue uh, turban is a certain depth into the scene his elbow is resting on the table at approximately the same depth into the scene. That's going to be important um, for what I'm going to show you, because I'm going to do some little tricky image analysis. So we'll blow it up. Here's that depth into the scene. There's the lattice work in the back, and here are the vanishing points. And right around where his head is, you can see we go from the purple to the green, the vanishing point changes. If you had laid this pattern out geometrically, Actually, it's very difficult to lay out something like this geometrically, where it would change. There's no reason for it to change. There's every reason here just to believe from this alone that it's a lens. And it's at the right depth into the, into the painting where, from reasonable optical properties, he would have had to refocus the lens. There's more, though. His elbow, I told you. Oh, now I've done something for you. And I'm going to have to show you this, a little demonstration. I've expanded the scene horizontally by a factor of five or so. And what I want to show you with a rubber band is if I take a line and if I expand one dimension, the line remains straight. There's no kinks that are uh, put into it by me stretching it in this direction. So it helps with some of these paintings to be able to see small changes in vanishing point to expand one dimension. It magnifies the apparent effect, and I just want to tell you, it doesn't introduce any new defects for this reason. And clearly, if you expand it in this direction and expand it in that direction, you've changed the overall magnification of the painting. If you take your photographs to the drugstore, you ask for a 4x6 or an 8x10, it doesn't matter what the magnification the of the photograph is, you don't get it distorted. It comes back with the original image intact if you did it in two directions. So I've expanded it horizontally and I'm going to show you there's his elbow at the same depth into the scene where his head was, which is where we saw he refocused. And we can see here change in vanishing point, change in vanishing point, change in vanishing point, consistent with what I just told you for the lattice work. And what I'm not going to show you is in the central pattern of the triptych, we can see the same thing. There's lots more evidence. So the earliest painting which contains this optical evidence that a lens was used, is this Robert Campan, and it's an hour away from you. So you should take a look at it. Different category, different, uh, completely different category of optical evidence are precise copies of different magnifications. I've found five art history books thus far that show this drawing next to this painting at different sizes, and I've reproduced them here at the correct relative sizes. The drawing is at a smaller scale than the painting. And the five art history books that show these at different sizes comment that very few drawings exist from this period. So this has been heavily studied and um, commenting about color and things like this. So what I did, I mean, by this point in the story, I'd looked at enough images that when I looked at this, I thought, This looks like a photocopy. I mean, it's that kind of accuracy between that image and that image. So what I will do is I will blow the drawing up to be the same scale as the painting. There it is. And here's our length scale. The distance between those two lines is one millimeter. If you have a little pen, it probably has half, or pencil, it has half millimeter lead in this. The pencil lead is not much wider than the spacing between those two lines. There's the painting. Yeah, pretty similar. What I'll do now is I'll, I'll make the drawing semi-transparent and overlay it on the painting. It's amazing. First, we'll ignore the ear, and I'll talk about that in a minute. The the eyes, the nose, the hair coming out of the nose, the earwax, everything about this to within a half a millimeter resolution, the wrinkles, it shows up better. It, the... The problem with video projectors is they don't maintain the detail we'd like to have. The wrinkles, all of these features with better than a half a millimeter resolution line up. This is completely off. How could that be? He bumped the painting. When he was reproducing the drawing to the painting, he bumped it by a few millimeters. Now, the ears, all these features, everything lines up perfectly, except for the earlobe and features down here. He bumped it a second time now think about how he was working. First, if I assigned people in this audience the task of taking a drawing and creating a larger drawing, larger by 40 percent with great accuracy and fidelity, not using a photocopier, most people in this audience could not do it and it's no reflection on you. you just how would you even go about producing this what? Van Eyck had was the equivalent of an overhead projector. What, the way you could do this is you take the same mirror lens that we've used to make the original drawing, you arrange the distances correctly, and you blow it up by 40%. The Cardinal is known to have come to Bruges for four days in December of, uh, whatever, 13, or 1430 or so. So he's there for four days. He's a very important person. He comes to sit for the, for Van Eyck. And I imagine there was not enough light. Anybody who's been in Northern Europe or probably in, in New Jersey in December knows there's no light. He didn't have enough light to project the image as bright as he needed. If you make an image half the size, it's the square of that four times brighter. So now he's got a very accurate drawing of the Cardinal, but the Cardinal is paid for a painting of this size and that's what he wants. Well, no problem, Van Eyck, blows up the drawing by the 40%, paints it, bumps it twice, and may even have noticed it after he bumped it. He put, you know, maybe he bumped it more than twice. And it, it turns out at this magnification range, it's um, it's very small changes in, in position make huge changes in, in relative size, so it's difficult to do. So it's a hard task for him not to have bumped it. He may have caught himself several times and erased it, taking the paint off, but two times we know he went, oh, This is too much trouble. I'll keep painting. Who's ever going to know? And then when he's all done, he FedExed the painting off to the cardinal in Rome and got his commission. Now we know how he worked with this incredible accuracy. Another completely different class of optical evidence. Um, David Hockney was very interested in Caravaggio from the start. And I looked a lot for evidence within Caravaggio until I finally ran across. And I do this part-time. I just kind of, and sometimes instead of watching TV, I look through art history books. There are many, many books. And if I were an art historian, I might have known exactly what book to look for, where Caravaggio's work um, was included. And the other thing I should note is you have to have modern, high-quality reproductions to hope to look for some of these things. And only in the last 10 years or so have art history books been mass-produced at a rate where they're inexpensive. Books prior to about 10 years ago, they're crudely screened. They're often in black and white. I mean, I'm, I was shocked to discover how many people learned art history from black and white images of of these color things. Like what? How could you do that? How could you inflict that on people? But you have to have modern books with good resolution. Now you have them. I discovered this Caravaggio. Now what I'm going to do is I take this lute and I've rotated it so the neck is vertical because I'm going to take that rubber band trick and stretch it. Remember, as I go from the, the top of the neck toward the soundboard, I'm going deeper into the painting. From the top of the neck into the soundboard, I'm going deeper into the painting. And I've stretched it horizontally to make things clearer. He's had to refocus here. There's a string. He refocused there. He refocused there. At the appropriate depths, you would have to for a lens to have been used. Now, let's look at some features here. One is that soundboard is, looks warped, and I can tell you why that is. I just don't have included in tonight's talk because we don't have time. But the other is I've blown up this sound hole as big as I can with the resolution of the image that I can find, and it's a detail of something that's only a couple of inches across. I fit to it a perfect ellipse. A Within the resolution I can blow this up, he, Imagine taking a circle, a saucer, looked at it at an angle, and you've reproduced that ellipse that you get with an accuracy of submillimeter accuracy. Either he's incredible with his hand-eye coordination, or, since we've already shown he's used a lens, he projected it, which makes it really easy. Now you, you just can trace that feature. So now we know that Caravaggio used lenses, and we can understand things about Caravaggio. Like, for example, this nice Caravaggio, he's not looking at the wound. I haven't found any art history book that talks about this. But he's clearly not looking at the wound. He's looking over here someplace. And there are other Caravaggios where people are looking in the wrong place. Um, David uh, conducted some experiments in his um, studio. I keep wanting to call it a lab. In his studio last year, reproducing how Caravaggio probably put these things together, the the lens itself will only capture a certain area of a person before it gets too fuzzy. He had to stage manage the various images. We can go into this and talk about this in great depth, of how Caravaggio repositioned everyone, and which makes it very easy, since these two people are never in the scene at the same time, to say, okay, remember where you were standing before, look where you remember the wound was. And he doesn't get it right. And Caravaggio didn't catch it. More optical evidence. One of the things I noted on on David's wall, he had these all organized on his wall in a very scientific fashion, exactly like Mendeleev must have done when he was putting together the periodic table of the elements, looking for comparisons. He had all the paintings, Western Europe paintings, of Northern Europe on the upper wall, chronologically ordered, Southern Europe on the bottom wall, and he was looking for features that might have changed. And one thing I noticed was at the time where this transition went from paintings not looking so realistic to where it looked incredibly realistic, there were lots and lots, the majority of paintings were of head and shoulders. Now that could be because they were following uh, traditions of Greek busts, but when you have this, I don't know, I just wondered if there was any any evidence that a lens had been used was responsible for that rather than emulating European or um, um, Greek bus. If a lens was responsible for it, that has major implications for understanding the art. And I'm studiously trying to avoid going off into these implications, which do fascinate me a lot. But it tells you that the tool was the limitation, not the artist's brain. Well, here's uh, well, there's a painting, large head, but small painting, small head, large painting. To correct for all of this. I measured the in real units of centimeters the average distance between the eyes and corrected for angle. If somebody's looking at 45 degrees, their eyes look like they're closer together, so you have to correct for the geometry, a real simple thing to do. And then I looked up in an almanac the average interpupil spacing of adults and found that all of these paintings covering a 100 years, Northern Europe, Southern Europe, Spain, Italy, Flanders, all these paintings were painted at 90%. I'd asked David when I first wanted to, get, to be interested in this. You know, fax me a couple of these. He faxed me 12. All 12 fit. All he didn't know what I was doing. It was like a, a blind experiment. He didn't know why I wanted it. He just I said, fax me a couple, and he faxed me 12. And I'm only showing you four. They all showed this. Now, why would this be? This is the the. Um, data that my colleague um, Jose Sassian ran for me. Just, I'll just kind of hand-wave my way through it because the technical details of the aberration can be a little bit difficult. But basically, that to scale, that if the aberrations, the fuzziness, the features of this simple one-element shaving mirror lens cause broadening, fuzziness of the image, to be broader than 20%, Inside that border, everything is sharp to within 20%. If you say, I could work with images that are broadened, and I'll show you in a minute what all this means visually, I can work with images that are broadened by 40%, you're still limited to painting something that's no bigger than about this. So whether it's 20% or 40%, you're still limited to head and shoulders. This is David driving me to the airport, the original photo, to give you an idea. If I blur that photo by 20%, well, we've lost the resolution, which actually your projector has lost already, but a good projector um, shows the resolution of the polka dot pattern in his handkerchief. It's lost at 20%, but you can see that's still a perfectly good image. You can recognize it as Hockney. You could use that image to paint. By 40%, you're kind of out of it. So this says that the spherical aberration and the astigmatism, two technical features, of a simple lens intrinsically limit you to painting something no bigger than head and shoulders. Here we have a Holbein, which I'll show you later. He used lenses. Holbein's numerous surviving portrait drawings are mostly of head and shoulders. The face looks photographic. The rest of it is just kind of pieced together. We know why. Here's one that um, I really like a lot. The anamorphic features. Famous painting, the French ambassador's Hans Holbein. I told you, we um, just—I'm going to prove to you—use lenses. There's this smear here, which, if you compress that smear, is this thing that looks skull-like. Well, this doesn't look like a skull to me. I mean, any number of people talk about, say, "Oh, we got a skull." End of story. Next painting. That's a skull. That's not a skull. I mean, it's got some skull-like features to it, but it's, it's wrong um, in any number of ways. So how could he have gotten it almost right but wrong? Well, he could have just laid this out geometrically and just screwed up as he did it, and it was fuzzy, because it is hard to, to do an image, an anamorphic image that way. But I'll show you why he screwed up. This is the setup I made. There is our skull. Here's our shaving mirror, and I'm going to... Project the image at a grazing angle onto this piece of cardboard, and then, from off on this side, take straight on at this piece i 'm going to take a picture of the projected image, a photograph with a digital camera. once more, there's the ring stand clamp I've taken the the mirror out, and I'm taking an image exactly of the skull. You would think that in the end, since I'm projecting the image. From this vantage point, I should reproduce exactly that skull. I mean, that's what optics would tell you uh, under certain circumstances if you were projecting it not at grazing angle. Well, I've projected it, and I exceed the depth of field, so I've had to refocus several times. I've used Photoshop to extract only the pieces that are in focus. And here, you can see I've deliberately left this, this piece is only about half the height of this piece. That tells you the magnification, as I've moved my lens to refocus, the magnification actually doubled. I had to shrink it by a factor of two with Photoshop, vertically. Now I will compress things. And this is what it should have looked like. We would have thought, this is what it looks like. There's something wrong and I can Scientists who asked me, I can tell you why this is. The transformation is linear in one dimension. goes as one over sine theta in the other. We won't go into that. Let me draw your attention to The jawline here is too long and too flat compared to this. There's this bulge in the back that's just absent here. And this, the right, from the point of view of our friend the skull's eye, is raised, giving us the impression this skull is looking at us more so than that. Where have we seen that before? Voila, the lengthened jawline, the bulbous point. I could get rid of this higher feature now if I wanted to take the time to do it again. And the staring at us. And notice something else here. That I Notice how this comes down, black spot goes up, comes down, black spot goes up. He's actually overlapped. He's reproduced this feature twice. You can see it again here. This crack, this crack. So he's made a mistake there. So we see how Hans Holbein created that anamorphic image. He did it by projecting with a lens. Oh, I'm right on time. So the next time you go to Princeton's faculty club, what the professor should tell you, or you should transfer to a different university, that you know that optical instruments first appeared at the onset of the Renaissance, around 1400, with the mirror lens, and epidioscope, overhead projector of Campan and Van Eyck, 200 years earlier than anyone previously thought. Flat mirrors only reflect image. You can focus an image onto a canvas or film with a concave mirror or a refractive lens, either way. Now, let me stop for a second. There are circumstantial reasons why I believe many of the paintings were produced with a, a concave mirror that I haven't gone into. I cannot prove whether it was that or a refractive lens. It could have been either, but it was a lens. And we now know that Renaissance masters like Van Eyck or Bellini were geniuses, there's no doubt about that, who produced their paintings by extraordinary dexterity, extraordinary visual perception, but also aided by images projected by lenses. This does not in any way take away from their genius. And I tell people, you try to make one of those anamorphic photographs, like I did, before you tell me it made... Holbein's job easier. It did make it easier, but it made it harder in many, many other ways and only if when you have tried to do it yourself will you realize um, how hard it is and how difficult it is and how much more of a genius these people were than you gave them credit for. So with that, I would be happy to answer questions. Um, I suspect people are going to ask some questions that are going to want me to project some more images. So going to turn we'll try it. We'll see. Questions? Anybody? Yes. Yeah, if I understood you correctly... You argued that the series of head and shoulder portraits were done typically at 90 percent magnification based on the separation between the eyes. Mm -hmm. But 500 years ago, people on average were shorter because nutrition was different. Right. And so did you take that into account? Okay. Uh, Back to my in the land of the data list statement that I could look up either there's armor in museums. You go see armor and you discover the people were shorter and you could correct for all of that. Those are second-order effects. My calculations, you know, are, are accurate to plus or minus 20% or so. So if the eyes were 20% closer together, it doesn't change the really strong fundamental conclusion. A lens was used, but it might change my focal length. I calculate from 550 millimeters to 490 millimeters. It, it makes no difference in the overall conclusions. So the answer is... It takes time to do that, and for that, we need art history graduate students to, to look up many of these kinds of questions. There are many ones that are open like that. If they learn some optics, too. Yes? Okay, so her question is sort of two-part. One is that the fact that all those paintings were at 90% magnification, I mean, that, of course, that's what I went, that's, that's bizarre. That That's unlikely to be a stylistic choice, um, and that's where we went into understanding why it was the lens that was used, and then why was it used over such a wide range? Now, following the... the um, sort of the, this technology, leaving Flanders. I can show you in a painting of um, Bartolome Bermejo, early, no, actually, late 15th century, Spanish painter. What I can find is he was probably trained in Flanders. I can show you he used a lens. Um, a painter, suggest, a Spanish painter, suggestively named Juan de Flandres, he used a lens. Now, why would they do this? It makes certain things Um, certain aspects of the painter's job much easier. You are... I'm a painter. You're a very rich countess. You come to me and you're very proud of this jewel that your husband just brought back to give you. And you want me to reproduce this. If I can reproduce it quickly and accurately and Paul just kind of paints his sloppy stuff, who are you going to bring the commissions to? Who are you going to tell your friends to bring their commissions to? And therefore... Who are other painters going to try to emulate? I mean, there, there are economic reasons for why people would want to, to use these lenses. What I was asking was really more. Um, I mean, apparently they're using the same technology over a very large
2: over a large time period as well. Is there anything special about a certain size or shape of lens? I'll be of choice, I guess. I mean, if, 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 if
0: like,
1: Um, So the question is, okay, slightly different question about why the 90%, why wasn't somebody producing portraits at at 200%? That's one aspect of it. Um, Why, um, is there something intrinsic about the lens itself that you would grind? Actually not so intrinsic about the lens itself, more about the magnification, that if I double the magnification, I cut the amount of light reaching the image by a factor of, Two squared, four. So it gets to be dimmer and dimmer. Uh, It would be great for doing miniatures, and I can show you some miniatures that were done with this because now the image is really bright because you made it smaller. But um, at some point, you just cannot make the image larger without it getting to be too dim. The the reason why at 90%, that's a more complicated one that I have to go into in more technical detail.
2: Which is part of the other my understanding of lenses is that they're refractive and a mirror is reflective. You're using the term interchangeably. Uh, which I understand. Yeah. but I'm somewhat confused. I mean, my sense was that most of these images were projections as a function of a contact mirror.
1: Okay, so Oh, Absolutely. I showed you that painting of de Modena of a, a cleric holding something that looks exactly even to, down to the handle, like a magnifying glass you would buy at the drugstore today. It wasn't clear whether that was reflective or refractive. No, That was a refractive lens. So there's evidence both kinds of technologies existed, and it's true. I do use the terms and some people get upset with me for using the term "scientist." I'm an optical scientist. We don't talk about a concave mirror as being a lens. We know it forms an image. I've discovered that essentially no one in society knows this. We take it for granted. So I talk about it as being a mirror lens to make explicit its imaging properties. Well, not exactly. You use mirror lenses in photography. You, you have a, sometimes they're called catadioptric lenses, it's a style, but they are mirror lenses in the same way this is, but also with a few refractive elements to correct those, um, residual aberrations. So I'm actually not using it differently than you use it. When you think of a mirror lens, it actually has two mirrors in it. Okay. The same imaging properties with now a few pieces of glass to correct the aberrations. Question back? Yes.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Now, what he's referring to is with a camera, with a old-fashioned Bellows camera, and I'm going to digress for a second, which projected the image upside down, if you remember. Um, some people say, "Well, these images are upside down. This means the artist painted upside down. How could they possibly do that?" We'll reject it. Essentially, every Ansel Adams photograph you've ever seen of Yosemite or of anything else was composed by him upside down. Um, you can tra- train yourself to work upside down very quickly. Art- a good artist can. Okay, there are swings, there are tilts, there are rises, there are falls, and they all can um, be used to advantage to you'll always have a depth of field problem, but in when there are surfaces that are leading away from you, you can sort of gather a little bit more depth of field than you would have had otherwise. And the other thing is we're kind of used to, you know, in a scientific lab, you would have a lens and you'd have it mounted to some um, you know, $5,000 kinematic mount that would move it up and down to the nearest submicron resolution. Well, you know, these guys would be hung from the wall or stuck to a piece of board. Things would be moved up and down in non-scientific ways. If if, um, I asked Paul to take a couple pictures by moving his lens by, you know, two millimeters, he'd move it by 2.00 millimeters each time. If you asked an artist, "Eh, okay, there's, well, two centimeters, let's say. I'll move it over here. So these guys were artists, not constrained to working um, with the constraints that we think about today. And that's the other thing about working with an artist as a scientist. I mean, some of the things... My very first correspondence with David, where I mentioned a mirror could be a lens, was I said um, something to the effect, well, but of course, you know, you'd want at least two surfaces because I was thinking in terms of to correct aberrations and to make the image higher quality and the like. And then I went to lunch, I came back and the next faxed him an hour later, I did what an experimental physicist would do. is I projected, I turned my office into a camera obscura and I projected an image with one mirror I thought, yeah, it's fuzzy, but boy, is this usable. So forget the fact that it's a little bit fuzzy at the edges where I was thinking too much like an optical scientist. Any amount of fuzziness is something to be gotten rid of as opposed to thinking like somebody, like an artist, make use of what you've got. In the back. Uh, By using the technique that you're describing, could an artist paint a self-portrait this way? Uh, The self-portrait question is, is an interesting one. Could he paint a self-portrait? I haven't figured out a good configuration where you're looking at two different directions. We find self-portraits of of people in concave mirrors and the like. Uh, It'd be very difficult. But let me um, say something different. I'm going to talk about a broader implication of this. We are so used to seeing images in modern society that are single point perspective. You look in any magazine, anything, we've been raised on this, watching television, it's all single point perspective. But think about what this was back in the world. You are in three dimensions. If I'm an artist, my task is to figure out how to take this complicated three dimensional world out there and put it in two dimensions up here. And this is hard. And artists struggled with this up until 1432 with their eyes alone. The first time you project an image, and there are other tonal qualities that I didn't go into that the mirror lens gives you that compresses tonal range for photographers. That's a, a real problem. If I'm looking out at this audience, and if the back window were open and it was daytime, I mean, I could look at somebody in the front row, I look back there, it's like way too bright to see. I've exceeded the tonal range of my eye to adjust. A, the poor quality of these early lenses, in fact, takes some of the light that were in the highlights, making them not as bright, and put them in the shadows, making them not as dark. It compresses the tonal range. Very useful fashion I can show you. But just projecting three dimensions into two dimensions, that even if an artist had not, didn't own a lens himself, if they just saw the lens used and saw what it did, it would just transform their life. I showed somebody today, projected an artist, projected with a a shaving mirror on the wall, an upside-down fuzzy image. And she thought this was pretty marvelous looking. And she, I'm sure, watches all sorts of bad television with high resolution. So you project one of these images and see the, the tonal qualities are quite marvelous. Seeing the world in two dimensions this way changes the way you think forever, is what I believe. And that, so these artists back there would have been transformed for that reason also. Well, okay, so why didn't they write this down? Yes, yeah, so they, they didn't think that it was the, of the world. Hmm. Well, a couple... I can give you... I can, Okay, so what I want to do here is... I find people get confused when I mix together scientific facts that I've shown... In speculations, I'm more than willing to speculate, but I'm going to clearly label it as speculation. So if you disagree with my speculation, think this is implausible. It has nothing to do with the scientific facts I've shown you. So I'm going to clearly mark this. So why, as speculation, why might an artist um, not have written this down? Paul discovers some new effect. He's going to write a Fizrev letter manuscript and send it off. Um, Somebody else, an artist, goes, if I write this Fizrev letter manuscript, Everybody's going to know how to do this. What a schmuck! You know, I'm not going to tell anybody because you know then he'll, the commissions will go to everybody else, and I'll have lost my advantage. That's one thing. These artists back then, I mean, their job was to create art. It wasn't to write manuscripts um, that we they might have regarded it as cheating. Now, as a result of of um, what David and Hockney and I have been talking about. Um, somebody in the science and technology program at Stanford just contacted me. He's retranslated um, tests from 1550, which were mistranslated before. That the word glass, if you are um, translating from Latin into English, and you know nothing about optics, and you see some word that has glass in it, it's actually ambiguous. Is, are they talking about round glass, coated glass? Uh, refractive lens kinds of glasses. Well, he's retranslated and discovered that now, 50 years earlier than people knew before, maybe 40 years earlier, that absolutely a refract, uh, sorry, a concave mirror camera obscura was in use and was understood. It could very well be other texts exist that people didn't have the knowledge to translate them correctly, where Van Eyck did say in Flemish, I use my Nikon lens, and somebody said, Nikon, what does that mean? Um, That must be some obscure Flemish word. It means, um, you know, canvas. So there could be, now as a result of this, people will go find more um, written evidence. But I still emphasize to you, absent any written word whatsoever, all the information you need is in the images. You have to read the images. And I can train you to read images. I can show you how to read images and to extract the information from the images. Yes. Uh, do you have any sense for how long this process
0: went on, or you know, where the endpoint was? It
1: start? Well, uh, it appears that there was no endpoint. That it just kind of uniformly evolved and transformed. That people were trying. Uh, Fox Talbot, given credit, um, co-credit for inventing photography in 1839 was, by all accounts, a bad artist who was interested in figuring out how he could, instead of having to project an image and trace it, which he was not very good at, to chemically fix the image. So you could follow this up to 1839. Um, Uh Canaletto was using lenses.
0: Well, the, the camera lucida, though...
1: But well, the camera lucida was an invention by Wollaston in the early 19th century. And um, actually, camera lucidas are still used by people who couldn't afford photographic film, um, just probably into the 60s or 70s. Uh, these are attachments that go onto a microscope lens as one version of a camera lucida that lets you see double, it lets you see the piece of paper you're drawing on, it lets you see also the you know, little bug that's moving around. So you can trace it accurately. Um, camera lucida is another the camera lucida was invented by Wollaston in I don't know 1803 or 1804 Angra used the camera lucida many people during the 19th century used the camera lucida No 1830 1803 or so No No There Wollaston is it, to the best of everybody's knowledge Wollaston um, invented the camera lucida There's other ways of accomplishing similar kinds of things. But the Wollaston prison, prism, which is still used in a technique in microscopy called Nomarski differential interference contrast. If you come to a lecture like this, you get all sorts of information, you um, Kara. Use a Wollaston prism. Yes. Could they have kept it secret from the... Okay, so if you saw this, here would be the scene. If I were going to paint you, this is my canvas, this is you standing next to it. I would have a round piece of glass, silvered, that's about one inch diameter, hanging on a wall here. Um, From the curvature of this, and think about uh, a shaving mirror, a makeup mirror in your bathroom... Mostly covered over. You know, there's stuff all over the walls. He's got, you know, Andy Warhol paintings and all this kind of stuff on his wall. And are you going to notice a one inch diameter piece of silver sitting there? Uh, Quite probably not. Okay, and then let's say you did notice it. Are you going to go and write a diary? Go back and say, today I was painted, you know, for a while and there was this piece of glass on the wall. Well apparently you wouldn't have done that because nobody's found such a thing as yet. That doesn't mean that those records don't exist or they're written in a way that since you didn't understand what this was doing, the words you would have written to describe it would have been fuzzy. People didn't understand optics back then. Another thing, there's something in optics that's called Snell's Law that tells you when you stick a pencil in a piece, in a water glass by how much it looks like it's bent. Snell's law is the index of refraction of this medium is n1, out here it's n2, and the angles are theta 1 and theta 2. It's n1 sine theta 1 is n2 sine theta 2. Very simple, very compact. Snell was a Dutch um, physicist around 1600. I have a description of Snell's law written 50 years earlier. The particle of light that jumps out of the water, travels along the water. It goes on for a paragraph. And it is, it's, it's recognizable to somebody who understands Snell's law as he's describing, because he doesn't have the simple words to do it, um, refraction. So when your portrait is being painted and you don't understand what's going on, you may describe it in a way that somebody translated it may not have understood. I for, I've got the reference here on my computer. I don't, I don't remember who it is that wrote that prior to Snell. It's quantitative, wow. uh, absolutely. The index of refraction and the angle, N1 sine theta 1, N2 sine theta 2. It's a qualitative description of... Yeah, and, but my point was, when you're trying to describe an index of refraction, if you have this quantitative way, you can do it very simple language. Before having the simple language, you have to describe it in a very complicated way. So someone later coming along to try to translate this may not understand the significance of it. the Significance of what somebody is describing as sitting through a portrait session. And let me say, I've been here for 20 minutes. I will stay as long as people want to ask questions. Feel free to leave whenever you want. It's, um, but I will stay and answer questions. It's not impolite if you leave. I just one more question, and then you can You're just okay? Yes. An art historian question.
2: Okay, an art historian question. What I don't understand, Charlie, is how this actually works. You have, let's say, Giovanni Bellini, and he's painting Doge Loredan, which you showed there. Doge Loredan is sitting here in front of him for ten minutes, probably, and, uh, and you have this tiny little mirror. What does it do? I mean, how does it project onto a canvas that is let's say, 90% the size of Doge Lorden. I, I don't see what actually happens there. What, what, is, what is the artist getting with
1: that lens? Okay. Um, bear with me for a second. I'll show you. <laughs> you turn the projector off. Oh no! Okay, it
2: takes ten minutes for it. To
1: we'll come turn it back again. on again, okay? Because um, there may be more questions. Right? So what I was going to show was a picture that was taken by Ren Weschler when David was painting my portrait. Yeah. What he had my image projected upside down on his canvas, right. with me in the lights, and he had me there for I would estimate two minutes. I mean, I was sitting still for portraits, so I couldn't look at my watch. But I'm a scientist, so I was trying to think about this. He captured the features that his skill as a portraitist has taught him, make me, me. Like he doesn't have to worry about my hair so much. He's got to get my eyes, my nose, my mouth correct. Took him two minutes to make certain marks on the painting, edges of my mouth, my eyes, and I've watched him do this many times. He then turned the painting over and continued as we imagine artists do, or as I would imagine artists do, with the portrait here and you know filling in all the details. And in 45 minutes, he had a painting of me so realistic that if you had never seen me in your life before, and you had the portrait, when I walk in the room, you go, oh, that's Charlie Falco. So faster than you can go to the one-hour photo store and do this. So what the image he had of me to repeat this, if I'm the doge, busy man, defending the city, I show up, I say, okay... You've got um, an hour or 15 minutes. You've got some time.
2: We know people didn't sit
1: for a yeah. long time for these workers. Okay. I really like this hat, it's a really cool hat. Um, most of my people wear it with the bill forward. I wear it with the bill backward because it makes me look more cool. He could um,
2: left the hat
1: okay. So yeah. <laughs> uh so he leaves the hat on a mannequin, and he gives Bellini as much time as he wants, weeks, to project that hat to... Um, paint in all the details. The Doge himself, the features of the Doge. Let's see if we've got enough power here to do this. Um, can you turn down these lights? I'll do that in a second. Yeah. Can I do that? Touch screen to continue. Completely different image appears here. Okay, so, Paul, you f- see if we can turn down the lights. Um, Well, I'm usually faster than this at finding these images. Yeah, not finding it. There we go. So here I am. This is what David saw. That's my image projected upside down.
2: And what is, where's this lens? I mean.
1: Well, it's over here, someplace outside the field of view.
2: One inch lens, right? I mean, it's a tiny little.
1: In this particular case, it wasn't, but yes, we'll say it's a one inch lens. In this, uh, we're doing a different experiment here, so it was a actual refractive lens. It's a one inch diameter lens would have done the same thing. My image is projected here, but um, the it's such that um, I always carry a camera with me, and I have for years. I gave my camera to the writer for The New Yorker, Lawrence Weschler, he took the picture. So the fuzziness you see here is it was a dim image and you can't use a flash it's because it'll wash out the image. So it's him shaking is why this is fuzzy. And then after me being there for two minutes, he continues. Now, had I been the Doge's hat, he could have kept me there forever until he got every little feature and detail exactly as he wanted.
2: The thing of it is, I mean, Bellini painted like this Uh, He was a very meticulous painter, so it wasn't simply that we have, you know, the portrait of the doge, which is so exquisite, but we have exquisite altarpieces. We have Madonna and child paintings and all of that with tapestry and so on, which is very, very, you know, very detailed and finely painted, Mm -hmm. and I guess that, you know, I I, I certainly don't reject the possibility of, of artists using lenses and that sort of thing but did they need to do it? He didn't need to do it.
1: Okay, the need to do it. That's, that one comes up often. (laughs) Did they need to do it? What makes you think, where is your evidence that he didn't need to do this? What is your evidence that he had such great skills? The only evidence you have to offer that he had, that these painters had this great skill is the images himself
2: well it's image after i mean he would have been very busy man with the lens okay, <laughs> otherwise you know every single thing in his very large workshop where you know yes. bellini had dozens of painters who were working in his hmm. workshop for him and uh, they would all would have been very busy with those lenses i guess
1: you well, know not and always
2: textile patterns and
1: i'm trying to and find things. for you here i've got an, uh, two images of bellini one that he clearly did not use a lens to create, and one the the doge, he did. Well, maybe so, with the doge he did. So not all artists. And let me say another thing: even within a given painting, not all artists use the lens to create everything. Go to the Arnolfini Marriage of Van Eyck. Right. Unless that little dog. Everybody who has a little dog, you know that unless you kill the little dog, <laughs> it's going all over the place. No. So he wouldn't have. He either killed the dog, which the couple wouldn't have been happy about, or he painted that one from his skill, his just skill alone. Other features, the chandelier, the, which is going to sit there all day. You don't have to kill the chandelier. The lens makes that so much easier to paint. So he would have used the lens where it made his job easier. He wouldn't have used it where it didn't make any kind of sense. If he painted a dragon, he wasn't using a lens to project the dragon.
2: What about the drawings that we have from artists? For example, Uccello, who's working out very carefully how to make, a, you know, do, do the foreshortening, let's say, of a chalice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there are all of the lines. In other words, he's, he's really trying to do it geometrically.
1: Many artists did things only geometrically. Not all artists use the lens all the time. Not the same artists that I can show you used a lens. Other cases, I would say, did not use a lens. Um, People um, tend to oversimplify this, think that this is essentially a photograph, that it made it photograph. Not at all. So it's much more complex than that. Don't oversimplify it. So some uh, artists, the good ones, were experimenting. I mean, the Bellini, I can show you where he didn't use a lens after he did use a lens. Well, you know, he's not limited to one technique. He must feel like he can do whatever he wants. You know, whatever makes most sense to him.
2: Well, it seems like we'd work with. Vote with uh, portraits, maybe, you know, but with these large uh, compositions, uh, you know, compositions, unless you're having people posing there, well, like that, which I, you know, sometimes probably happened.
1: Our vision of Caravaggio is he was running it like a Hollywood studio that like set directors bringing Tempos. people in because he had you can see in a number of his paintings that have five or six people that the same um, model was used for more than one character. So he was posing people. He was bringing them in. More questions? Okay, I think we Oh, sorry, that was it.